وَصَحْبِهِ وَمَنْ إِسْتَنَّ بِسُنَّةِ لَيَوْمِ الدِّينِ All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on His last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic of this evening is that of the science of hadith. And what I will attempt to do is to show the relationship between hadith and Islam, Sunnah, as well as to look at some of the principles which govern the science itself of hadith and the significance of knowing these principles, you know, how practically is it applicable to us, to our Islam, the Islam that we're practicing. Now, the first point I would like to make clear, because we hear the two terms, hadith, and we hear the term Sunnah. These are often used sort of, you know, uh, interchangeably. And the way we can understand the difference actually between the two is that the hadith represents the vehicle. for the sunnah the vehicle or the means by which the sunnah is conveyed to us hadith the term hadith means a saying or speech when it's used as a noun and as a verb it means something which is new not, not a verb, sorry, as an adjective used as something, meaning something new what is most relevant to us is the meaning as a noun from a technical point of view it refers to the sayings actions actions which were done in the presence of the presence of the Prophet which were approved by him which were all conveyed by his companions to the next generation of Muslims and from them to the generations following the hadith fundamentally consists of two parts one part in English we would call the text in Arabic it's called the Matin and this represents the actual statement of the Prophet Muhammad or, an, or a description of his action or approval 
The other part of the hadith is called the chain of narrators. And this in Arabic is called the Sanad. And this includes the names of the narrators of the text or the statement. To give you an example of what is meant by the text and the chain of narrators, I'm going to read a hadith which is found in Sahih al-Bukhari. It is as follows. Haddathana Musaddad Qala haddathana Yahya عن شعبة عن قتادة عن أنس عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى يحب لأخي ما يحب لنفسي أو حتى يحب لأخي ما يحب لنفسي That is Musaddad told us This is Imam Bukhari is making the statement. Musaddad told us from Yahya that Yahya informed him from Shu'ba, from Qatada, from Anas, from the Prophet Muhammad that he said, none of you truly believes until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. So the statement or the matan would be in this case none of you truly believes until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself and the chain of narrators are those individuals that Bukhari quotes who conveyed that statement for the Prophet ﷺ to him Musaddad, Yahya, Shu'ba, Qatada and Anas from Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. that represents the chain of narrators now, what does that mean to us? I mean, what is the significance of this? The significance is that from this principle of conveying statements of Prophet Muhammad over generations or from students or teachers to students there evolved a science which sought to distinguish between the authentic traditions of the Prophet Muhammad and those which were not authentic the necessity for this arose because of the fact that when Islam began to spread out of Arabia and it defeated the neighboring nations you had people 
who could not oppose Islam militarily. So they sought to oppose it internally by pretending to be Muslims and by introducing false or fabricated ideas into the teachings of Islam in order to attack Islam from within. You had people who began this process from the early generation of uh, during which Islam was spread. From the earliest times, some of the texts were written from in the time of Prophet ﷺ because it is mistakenly thought that all of the traditions were written, you know, some uh, three, two to three generations after the time of Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. However, you can find uh, extensive research done by Muslim scholars where they have proven without a shadow of a doubt that the writing of the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad took place from in his own time. Some of the companions did write down material. We had a statement uh, of the Prophet Muhammad in which he told the companions not to write anything from him besides the Quran. And this is what is usually held up by Orientalists as evidence that the Sunnah or the statements, actions and approvals of the Prophet ﷺ were not recorded until a number of generations later. And the significance of that is that they then claimed that this process of recording was influenced then by the political trends of the time. That is, the people in that third generation after the time of the Prophet who sought to justify certain actions or certain understandings or positions would at that time fabricate statements which they would attribute back to Prophet to defend their ideas. This is how the Orientalists tried to present this, how Hadith came about. It was just a huge fabrication process which took place some three generations on, and more after the time of Prophet Muhammad and it was used by the rulers who wanted to justify certain things they were doing as well as by scholars, as well as by you know, philosophers, every group who wanted to promote some idea to give it its substance or to give it backing, they would quote a statement of Prophet Muhammad to support it, which was fabricated by them. This is their claim. However, this statement that Prophet Muhammad was reported to have made, in which he said, don't write anything from me besides the Quran, this statement came to the hands of the Orientalists by the chains of narrators. It is not something they discovered from the time of Prophet Muhammad Where did they get this statement from? They got this from a chain of narrators who conveyed this statement. This same chain of narrators also conveyed that some of the companions did write down 
things from the Prophet Muhammad That is, on some occasions he did instruct people to write down things. You see, and what was concluded, how Muslim scholars look at that statement of Prophet Muhammad is not that it was just a complete prohibition of writing anything from him, but for the general people and the people who were involved in recording the Qur'an, they were instructed not to write anything else so as not to have anybody mixing up statements of Prophet ﷺ with the Qur'an. What was most critical at that time was to record the text of the Qur'an as the Prophet ﷺ taught it to them because it was being revealed at that time in a pure form to avoid any kind of interpolation or mixing up with the statements of the Prophet Muhammad himself. So this was a general uh, prohibition which he gave to the common people, especially those and the scribes who were writing the Quran. However, he did give permission to others of the companions who had dedicated themselves just to uh, collect, to record the statements of Prophet Muhammad by memorization as well as by writing. And we have some well-known incidents in which the Prophet ﷺ actually instructed where people came to him and asked certain, about certain teachings of Islam. And when the Prophet ﷺ explained to them, they requested, could you please, could we get this in writing to take back to our people? And he instructed certain companions, write this down for one individual by the name of Abu Shah, who is well known write down for him. And on other occasions, writing took place. So, one, the fact is that writing took place in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And during the time of the Sahaba, after the passing away of the Prophet, Muhammad ﷺ, the Sahaba, some of them recorded materials. And there is chains of narrators indicating that this took place during their time. It also took place after in the generation of students who studied under the companions, writing also took place in their time. What also happened along with the conveyance of the statements of the Prophet from the early generation, in the time of the companions, we found that those who were narrating the statements also narrated biographical information about whom they narrated from and the circles of learning which they attended. So along with the hadith, you had what was being conveyed, another uh, uh, complementary body of material which they call in Arabic Elm Ar-Rijal Elm Ar-Rijal which is really we could just call it biographical information on 
the narrators. On the narrators of the traditions. This was important to prevent the process of fabrication of traditions of the Prophet from entering into the body of authentic traditions. This was the means by which the scholars, which would aid scholars of that generation and later generations to distinguish between those attempts at fabrication and that which was in fact authentic traditions from Prophet Muhammad And out of this, the traditions which were coming, the biographical information which was related, the scholars developed a system of classification of hadith or hadith criticism in which they divided hadith into two basic categories. Sahih and Da'if. Sahih and Da'if. Sahih meaning authentic and Da'if meaning in authentic. They developed a, 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 a series of conditions by which a scholar could determine what was authentic and what was not authentic. Now, I will look at here, because this is just a, an introduction really to the science of hadith, I will look at here the three most important conditions which they set. The first was what we would call integrity. The second could be called Reliability and the third continuity. The first condition, integrity, this refers to the narrators in that they were to be all practicing Muslims, not known to be committing any major sins, you know, uh, 
disobedience, whether it is sins against themselves in the sense of disobedience to Allah or sins against people. This is the first condition. Thus any hadith which was narrated by somebody who was, he did not establish their prayers or was known to uh, commit fornication or drink alcohol or anything like this automatically that tradition is not accepted how we know about these people from Al-Murrijal the biographies concerning the individuals of course if you were to apply this principle to the information that we receive through the media today we would have to just take up the newspaper and throw it in the garbage really I mean all the information the, whether it be history textbooks or whatever these conditions would wipe out all that information so you see actually just from the very first condition Muslims were taking extra care to ensure to the greatest degree possible that the information that was coming to them was truly from Prophet Muhammad the second condition reliability this had to do with the person's ability to memorize and convey information without any mistakes This, how did, was this determined? Now, a given student of the companions, for example, or companion of the Prophet ﷺ, would teach and convey statements or actions of the Prophet ﷺ over a period of time. He would have around him a group of students they would be recording or memorizing what he said. Now scholars would look at the information which was conveyed by a given companion. If they found that each time that he narrated a statement of the Prophet ﷺ, there were variations in what he was saying, then they would conclude from this that his memory was not that good. Or, sometimes you would find that he would narrate something consistently when he was younger in the beginning of his teaching career, whereas in the latter part, you would find that certain, uh, he would forget certain parts of it. So they would, they would classify him as having two stages. An early stage when he was reliable and a latter stage when things which were narrated when he was older which were not reliable. But in general, if it was proven, shown through comparison that a person did not consistently convey information in the same for format or the same way then that person would be considered to be a non-reliable narrator and the hadith 
the statement that he's conveying would be put under the category of being inauthentic. So again, this is extra care. Now, reliability could be by way of memorization or it could be by way of writing. Obviously, ones who had written combined with memorization were considered stronger than those who just had memorization or those who just had writing. The last condition is that of continuity. Continuity means that each person in the chain of narration lived within the same time period or attended the same circles were proven to have been in contact with each other. This is what ensures that that chain is consistent. Otherwise, you may find, if you find in a chain, that somebody is narrating from somebody who lived or died when this person was at the age of two or three or four, we say this chain is broken here. It's not a continuous chain because you could not possibly have heard that tradition from that particular individual. He was not in the same real time area, uh, time frame. So, using these main three principles, the traditions of Prophet Muhammad were then divided into the two categories of Sahih and Daif. The significance of this. Why did all this effort come about? Because Allah has stated very clearly in the Quran that whoever obeys the Messenger has obeyed Allah. May yuti'ir Rasul faqad Allah. Whoever obeys the Messenger has obeyed Allah. So it means that what the Prophet ﷺ had to say was as significant as the Qur'an. It is as important as the Qur'an. This is a mistake when people hold that, you know, the Qur'an is most important, then come the statement, no, no, these are side by side. Revelation came in two forms. The direct word of God in a particular literary form which was used in worship and whose smallest chapter was a miracle, is a miracle. That's the Quran. But the revelation also came through the statements and actions of the Prophet As Allah said in the Quran, وَمَا يَنْتِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَىٰ That he does not speak of his own desire. But what he has conveyed to you is revelation which has been revealed to him. So, we have in fact 
these two basic sources of revelation the Quran and the statements and actions of the Prophet which came to be known as the Sunnah so because the Sunnah had such a high status and that status was further in, you know, reinforced by Allah defining the Sunnah as being the interpretation of the Quran when Allah said in Surah Nahal verse 44 وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَ لِتُبَيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ مَا نُزِّلَ إِلَيْهِمْ and we have revealed to you Muhammad the reminder, the Quran in order that you make, make clear to the people what has been revealed for them, to them that the Quran as a whole cannot be understood without the Sunnah some parts of it can be understood but much of the Qur'an, especially the sections which has to do with the application of Islam, cannot be understood without the Sunnah. Allah says in the Qur'an, Atim salah establish the prayer, but it is the Sunnah which tells us how to establish the prayer. It is the Sunnah. Allah says, pay zakah, but it's the Sunnah which establishes this for us, how much Allah says cut off the hand of the thief but it's the sunnah which clarifies for us that hand doesn't mean up to your armpit because hand in Arabic it could include all of this it's the sunnah which clarifies for us that it is to the wrist all of this the sunnah is necessary for understanding of the Quran itself furthermore as a Muslim community there will be disputes which will occur amongst them. And these disputes have to be resolved. Allah has said in the Quran, وَمَا أَنزَلْنَا عَلَيْكَ الْكِتَابَ إِلَّا لِتُبَيِّنَ لَهُمْ الَّذِي اخْتُلِفُوا فِيهِ الَّذِي اخْتَلَفُوا فِيهِ وَهُدًا وَرَحْمَةً لِقَوْمِ يُؤْمِنُونَ That the Quran the Sunnah was there to clarify for the people with regards to the things in which they differed. Whether it is a difference in terms of interpretation and application of the Quran or differences which take place amongst them. Furthermore, Muslims were instructed that they had to believe, had to accept the rulings of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu In Surah An-Nisa verse 65, Allah says, فَلَا وَرَبِّكَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ حَتَّى يُحَكِّمُوكَ فِي مَا شَجْرَ بَيْنَهُمْ ثُمَّ لَا يَجِدُوا فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ حَرَجًا مِمَّا قَضَيْتَ وَيُسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا they have not believed that is faith true faith is dependent 
on them making you Muhammad the judge between them in the things in which they differ and that they accept the rulings which you have made without feeling in their hearts any displeasure or rancor that is it's not just enough even to know that in Islam Prophet Muhammad said so and so so you go and do it you have to do it feeling good about it because if you do it feeling you have an attitude you know you're doing it because you feel like you're pressured it's of no use your faith true faith involves you doing what has been decided by the messenger of Allah doing so with a complete submission in your heart so realizing all this and there are many many other you know statements from the Quran which further elaborate and expand on this for time's sake I'm just trying to stay with just a general uh, introduction on this Realizing this, the companions were very careful to resolve their differences through the Sunnah. After the time of the Prophet ﷺ, when he, after he died, when new issues arose, Islam spread into Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, you know, Persia, India, new issues arose. Decisions had to be made. They would, re- they would determine what the solutions were by the caliph asking the leading companions or those that are available if they knew anything from the Quran on the subject or if they knew anything from the statement of Prophet Muhammad on the subject. And on some occasions when they would ask and a companion would say I heard Prophet say so and so the caliph would ask who else has heard this? Who else can be witness to this man's statement? As further support ensuring that the information which was being conveyed was not something uh, which this person might have mistakenly thought he heard, but something which was in fact a statement or action conveyed of Prophet Muhammad This was their means of resolving issues, establishing the laws for the Ummah. And this is in keeping with the Prophet Muhammad statement, you know, that he left with us two things. Taraktu fikum amrain. I've left with you two things. Intamasektum bihima if you hold on firmly to them you will never go astray Kitabullah wa sunnati the book of Allah and my sunnah that's the foundation of Islam and this is why the science of hadith became so important because it was the science of hadith which ensured that what we had of the sunnah was in fact authentic because we had to build our society build our laws social, economic, 
uh, you know, political, whatever, laws had to be built on the basis of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So it was essential that we be certain that the material that we had was authentic. So, what this means to us today, practically speaking, is that if we have any practices, or we hear about any practices, we have to determine whether these practices are in fact authentically narrated from Prophet Muhammad because the fabricated and weak narration did not disappear those scholars who conveyed material they would convey even material for example which was not authentic they would convey it and identify those narrators who were unreliable or whatever pass along that information also so people would be able to make that distinction whenever the time or the occasion demanded practically speaking for us today we have two basic books of traditions Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim which we can rely on for authentic traditions 100% the other books the other four or five books included in the general category of the they call the authentic six Sihah al-Sitta that is the Sunan of Tirmidhi Abu Dawood, Ibn Majah, and Nasai, as well as Muatta of Malik. These books, though the large, the preponderance of the hadith conveyed in the books are authentic, still, in these books, you will find 30%, 25% of the traditions are taif. So it means that those other books, Abu Dawood, which has been translated into English, for example, you cannot just go there and pull out any hadith and say, well, this hadith is so. You have then to refer this hadith back to the scientists of hadith who have identified the weak and strong traditions of these other books to ensure that the material that you're working with is in fact authentic now the importance of this can be seen in the seerah itself in our relationship with Prophet Muhammad because when you read about the Prophet's biography you will find a number of things written there are statements that when the Prophet 
was in the stomach of his mother, Amina, that the angels came to him, came to her, and informed her that she was going to have this child, just as the angel came to Maryam before she bore Isa, and informed her that she was going to have a child. In the case of Isa, that is in the Quran, and it is true, 100%. But in the case of Muhammad, it's a lie, not true. It's a fabricated story. Some individuals, in an attempt to elevate Prophet Muhammad, to compete with Prophet Isa, they started fabricating stories to make him like at least like him. Because in their mind, if the angel came to Maryam and the angel didn't come to Amina, it means that somehow Prophet Isa is better than Prophet Muhammad. So they say, we can't have that now. You know, Prophet Muhammad is the last of the prophets. You know, he's got to be the greatest. So anything that's happened with Prophet Isa, at least Prophet Muhammad he had these things. At least. So you found people making up these stories about the Prophet Muhammad I've read also in some of the literature written for the celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, you know, narrations which they trace back, claiming that the Prophet related these things, that when he was born, he was born in sujood, came out of the womb. When she delivered him, when Maryam, when uh, Amina delivered him, he came out in sujood. Miracle. But it's a lie. Not true. Also, that when he was born, the idols that were around the Kaaba, the idols of the Quraysh, they fell down. Lies. The fire in the fire temple of the uh, Zoroastrians, the fire worshippers in Persia, it went out. Lies. Not true. But this has become part of the fables. You know, you read any standard book you can buy now on the market which is describing the birth of Prophet it's all in there. Yet, you will find in Sahih Muslim the Prophet's statement indicating that his own father is in hell. And in Sahih Muslim, you will find him indicating that his mother is in hell. But, as far as the Muslim world is concerned, the angels came to Amina. She is going to be in paradise. The father, his home is a place where people you know, claim they have his home in Mecca and people go there and make special rakats there and everything. But the Prophet has informed us that his parents are in hell. But people, in an attempt to elevate him, have further they went on to say that the first thing that Allah created was the light of Muhammad. They called Nur Muhammadi, the Muhammadan light, which was created from Allah's light. And they have a story about how this light went, came to the earth with Adam. It was in, you know, the the. Uh, the loins of Adam and it traveled down through all the prophets 
until you know came with the Prophet's birth. It's a lie. False. False. And furthermore you will find people in the course of these celebrations of the Prophet's birthday, they will attribute to Prophet things which elevate him now, giving him powers of Allah. Making him superhuman. Making him an intercessor. One who can change the things in this world. One to whom people pray. They've made him as the way the Christians made Isa alayhi salam. And this is all a product of Daif fabricated narration. Where did it end up? In shirk. So you see, this is that, that fabricated body of material, this is satanic. And what it draws the people into is shirk. So it's very important for Muslims in order to build a community, society, in order to establish their own Islam properly, they have to utilize the Sahih or the authentic aspects of the Sunnah in order to do so. Otherwise, they will be on the wrong path. And much of the deviant practices which are associated with the mystics, you know, known as Sufis, the various practices that they have. When you look into these practices, you try to track down where did they come from, you'll find that they don't have any authentic origin. They fall under this category. Fabricated, or at least weak, material. And again, what it tends to lead to is different forms of shirk. innovation the opposite of the sunnah is bid'ah that's the opposite and bid'ah has its root in the inauthentic that's what it is in essence the two cannot coexist Satanic forces strive to promote the bid'ah, to make it appear appealing and attractive to the masses of the people in order to crush the sunnah. That's the, that's the goal. And this is why today, in much of the Muslim world, if you come to people with the sunnah, it means apostate. This is what you are. You're bringing a new religion. Changing the religion. Why? Because when the followers of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab first went into Mecca and Medina, they went to the graveyard 
And the graveyards, if you see pictures of the graveyards in Mecca and Medina at that time, back in the 1920s, these graveyards look like cities. Huge edifices built over the grave with domes and minarets and all kinds of things, looking like homes. Today you can still see this in places like Egypt. If you go to the graveyard in Egypt, they have built structures over the graves, They're like homes. So much so, I visited. I heard about it and I went to see it myself. So much so, that the poor people who don't have homes have broken in there and have set up home there. You'll find families living in there and the government because they cannot provide other homes. They have even piped water into the graveyards for these people so they can be able to wash their... They're living inside the graveyards. Built second stories on top of these, <laughs> these homes. Homes for the dead. Yet, Prophet Muhammad in authentic tradition told Ali ibn Abi Talib to go and any grave that he found which was a a hand span above the ground he should level it with the ground this is the Islamic way this is the authentic practice the sunnah that the graveyard is not supposed to have structures over it Prophet ﷺ forbade the building of structures over graves forbade it but today that is a plague in the Muslim world and what the structures do is that they create in the minds of the people a sense of, of holiness and, and, and uh, reverence. So the people will come down to the graves and people are now encouraged to make prayer at the graves. You see people making tawaf around the graves, sacrificing and all these things going on now at the graves. All of it, the opposite of Islam. And the source again is the dying the fabricated and inauthentic traditions, creating bid'ah as opposed to the sunnah, crushing the sunnah. We see that this is very, very important science, very important for Muslims to understand. Islam is not just a haphazard kind of thing, like Christianity. This is what happened to Christianity. Christianity, the sunnah, the way of Prophet Jesus, it was overcome by the bid'ah of Paul. Paul and his followers, the Greeks, etc., they were the innovators, the bid'ah, friends of Satan. They changed the law, cancelled it, replaced it with their own practices, brought in all kinds of pagan practices from the various societies till what you have today in Christianity is in fact bid'ah, from A to Z. Because they had no science, no means of determining, distinguishing, then there was no way to stop it. But because Islam was to be the final message, Allah preserved the Qur'an and He also preserved the Sunnah. He preserved the Sunnah because without the Sunnah, we cannot understand the Qur'an in its totality. So these both were preserved. You have a body of people who try to imply 
that the sunnah was not preserved. And this is where you have to be very careful because they're included in many circles. They will inc they're included as being a part of the ummah, the Muslims. But their, their approach, their view, is that the companions of the Prophet Muhammad apostated. The vast majority of them left Islam. And so, when they want to relate anything about Islam, they don't say, Prophet Muhammad said or Prophet Muhammad did. They say, Imam Jafar, Imam Rida, Imam so-and-so, Imam did this, Imam said that. You hardly see Prophet Muhammad did and said that. Because they have replaced much of the Sunnah with Bid'ah. They've deviated as a group. So be very careful. Just to give some um, more direct examples, wherein it is important for us to make this distinction. We also find within, if we come right down to the very act of prayer that we are involved in. Now, Prophet Muhammad had stated in Sahih al-Bukhari, Sallu kamar aytumuni usalli. Pray as you saw me pray. That means pray as I am reported to have prayed in the authentic traditions from me. It's important for us to pray as he prayed. On one occasion, What he did was, he climbed up on top of the mimba and started praying up there. When the time came for him to make sujood, he backed down off the mimba to the ground, made sujood at the base of the mimba, and then walked back up, continued to pray. All of the companions stopped to watch the Prophet because this was something which was obviously very strange. Why Prophet is doing this? So when he finished, he turned to them and he said, I only did this so that you may learn my method of prayer. So to pray as he prayed has a degree of importance which none of us can deny. Now, in some occasions, in some cases, we find differences in prayer which can be traced back authentically to Prophet Muhammad For example, in sitting, sometimes he sat in what is known as iftirash, sitting like this, on the bottom of the left foot, propping up the right foot. But it's also reported authentically that he sat in this fashion too. 
on the bottom of both of his feet. And as he sat like this, Tawarruq, with the left foot coming underneath, and that he also sat letting this foot down. So now, if a person sat in these different modes, he would be keeping or fulfilling that commandment of Prophet in praying as we saw him pray. Because this is, these are all variations which he did. However, not all of the common variations which we see amongst people today are in fact attributable to the Prophet And something so basic as Salah, we should be clear on this. Now we should be clear and knowing that what we are doing in terms of our prayer is in fact directly from Prophet But for many people, they're not. They just pray as their father did, as family did, or as the people in the area did. This is how they pray. It's not based on actual knowledge and surety that this in fact is what Prophet did. And one of the classical mistakes which is found in uh, prayer uh, is that concerning where to place one's hands. Commonly, people pray with their hands below the navel or around the navel. And this is based on a tradition found in both the Sunan of Abu Dawood as well as the Musnad of Ahmed. Reported from Hafs ibn Ghayyaf, from Abdurrahman ibn Ishaq, from Ziyad ibn Zayd, from Abu Juhayfa, that Ali ibn Abi Talib was supposed to have said, the sunnah position of hands in Salah is to place one hand on the other below the navel. However, this hadith is ta'if. Because Abdurrahman Ibn Ishaq was a known liar. When you look into the Ilmur Rijal, you find that he was identified as a known liar. That means the traditions which he narrates are considered inauthentic. That the only authentic tradition with regards to the placing of the hands are the ones which are used in the Shafi'i Madhab based on the narration from Tawus in which he described the Prophet placing right hand on left hand on the chest. This is the correct position. This is just, I'm just giving you a direct and more practical example. The correct position is placed right hand and left hand on the chest. Not necessarily saying it's got to be up in your neck here, you know. It does just the area, this is your chest area, you know, wherever you put it on your chest is, you're placing it on your chest. But on the navel or below the navel, this is not authentic practice from Prophet Muhammad. Of course, one would say, but you know, a very small point, I mean, is this going to cancel, make your salah invalid if you did this or you didn't do this? No, I would say not. If a person prayed with their hand below the navel, it would not make their salah invalid. They didn't know better. 
But if a person, if information came to the person which proved to them or showed to them that in fact it is not correct, it was not the authentic tradition of Prophet to pray with the hands below the navel, and they chose to do so because that's what we do in my place, that's what my parents did, that's what my madhab says, or that, you know, if a person takes that position, then we are in serious problems in a very serious situation because as the early scholars said early scholars Abu Hanif and others said that with regards to somebody who is told a, a tradition of Prophet but refuses it due to the statement of so and so and so and so that that person you know is on the verge of calamity dangerous situation and of course you have the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in surah An-Nur verse 63 and to seebahum fitnatun or you seebahum azabun alim because this is what they were referring back to this verse in which Allah says in the Quran let those who would contradict the practice of the Prophet ﷺ, beware that they would, there would uh, befall them a calamity or at least a terrible punishment. So very important. If you, it's one thing you do something out of ignorance, you didn't know better. But it's another thing for you to deliberately know what is what the Prophet ﷺ did and for you to reject it because of the statement or practice of somebody or some people because our declaration of faith depends its validity depends on our living up to our commitment when we say ashhadu anna muhammadar rasulullah this is a commitment that we're making to Allah declaration of faith commitment that we will follow the prophet muhammad sallallahu to the T to the best of our ability he is the only one who we will follow blindly anyone else we judge what they have to say according to what the Prophet said and he did so in summing up we pointed out here that we have two terms hadith and we have sunnah The Sunnah represents the second source of law in Islam, which is inseparable from the Quran. And we pointed out that the Sunnah was conveyed to us by way of the Hadith, the Hadith being the vehicle by which the Sunnah was conveyed to us the way of the Prophet Muhammad its opposite or its antithesis is bid'ah in simple terms that's what bid'ah is it is the opposite of the sunnah as you have the opposite of tawheed is shirk the opposite of the sunnah is bid'ah we pointed out 
that the science of hadith evolved out of a necessity to clarify or to distinguish between the authentic traditions of the Prophet and the fabricated body of materials which was coming into the information which was being taught introduced mainly by those people who sought to destroy Islam from within following the principle of Paul if you can't beat them join them pretend to be one of them and destroy them from within and we pointed out that the authentic traditions were deemed authentic if they fulfilled at least these three basic criteria one of integrity that is that the people who are narrating the traditions were known to be righteous practicing Muslims not known to be committing any of the major sins two that they were reliable in their means of narrating the information either by having extremely good memories or by writing down the material which they heard and three that the chains of narrations were continuous in that those who are narrating lived or met the people from whom they were narrating and we said that this distinction was critical because our Islam whether on a personal level family level community or governmental world scale depends on our judging and ruling in accordance with the authentic sunnah not bid'ah we pointed out and gave examples how bid'ah can lead to hell lead to shirk lead to major deviation from Islam so our only protection from this is through the science of hadith ensuring that the sunnah with which we are working is in fact authentic there is another aspect of the sunnah which I think is also important to look at however I want to see in terms of the time is it okay to continue or should I stop here Okay. Okay. Okay, we'll continue then to the second aspect of the Sunnah, which is important for us to grasp. When we are looking at its application. Now this goes into an area of what we call usul al-fiqh, really, or the sciences of Islamic law. But because it's related back to hadith and the basic concept of sunnah, I want to touch on it because it's, uh, it's also an area where people become confused. And it's very important for us to have some clarity in understanding you know, how the sunnah is applied. So we start off with the sunnah at the top here. Right? Now this sunnah we said was divided into two categories. The inauthentic or the da'if we refer to and the authentic. And of course what we said is that what we are 
are considering here is really only the authentic. So this section of it is really not relevant to us when we're talking about applying and establishing principles of Islamic law. Now, from this authentic sunnah, we have this divided into two categories. One which we can call natural, and the other one which we call legal. In Arabic, natural is called sunnah tabi'iyyah, and legal is called sunnah tashri'iyyah. Now, what is meant by this? What is meant here is that Prophet Muhammad was a man. As Allah said in the Quran, قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشْرٌ مِثْلُكُمْ يُوحَى إِلَيَّ أَنَّمَا إِلَهُكُمْ إِلَهُ الْوَحِدِ Say to the people, Muhammad that I am only a man. Really, I am only a man, just like the rest of you. But I'm distinguished by the fact that Allah has revealed to me that our God is one God. This is the distinction is in the area of the wahi, revelation. This is what distinguished Prophet Muhammad We already pointed out that the bid'ah traditions which make Prophet Muhammad a demigod, all of this is against Islam. Which attribute to Prophet Muhammad the attributes of Allah, all of it is outside of Islam. But furthermore, when we talk about Prophet Muhammad as a prophet of Allah, he was also an Arab, born in the 7th century, living in Arabia, who had personal likes and dislikes which were his own. Now some people might say, well no. Everything about Prophet Muhammad we're supposed to follow. We don't make any distinction between things which are per- no it's all all of it some people will insist on that however Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he made this distinction this is not something theoretical which I am putting on you now no this is something which Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu himself made and this you can find in a tradition found in Sahih Muslim the tradition of the date palms very famous tradition when Prophet Muhammad went to Medina, he found the people of Medina artificially pollinating the date palms. They would cut a piece out of the male date palm and they would splice it into a section of the female date palm for it to pollinate and bear fruit. When he came there and he found them doing this, he asked them, why are you doing it? He questioned this because of the fact that when you look at the general principles of Islam, you will see that it is generally opposed to any kind of changing the natural way. In general, it is opposed to changing the natural way. And we talk, you know, there's the verse in the Quran where Allah talks about Satan as coming to the people, beguiling them and fooling them until they will change the natural way, the nature in which Allah has created desire to change nature like now you have the problem in the, the uh, I saw on the television here where the breast implants women who put implants into their breast to make their breast bigger and all this now now they're finding out that from the time they put it in it's starting to leak 
and the, the, the leakage of the silicone is going in and mixing in with the milk and it is possibly the source of many of the sicknesses and things that are rising up amongst the children. This is Satan that has come to them, beguiled them into thinking, I must have, you know, my chest must be at least 35 or 38 or whatever, you know. If I'm not, then I'm not whole, I'm not complete. You see, this is, this is Satan. Causing people to come in and play with nature and change themselves in this fashion. This is why it is prohibited for women to pluck their eyebrows. You know, you'll find women, they'll pluck it until, maybe they pluck it all out. They just make a line with a, <laughs> with a, with a pencil, you know, something like this. I mean, this is prohibited in Islam. Similarly, tattooing. For men to make tattoos, you know, this is very popular. This, uh, with these, these guys in, um, in, Tokyo, in, uh, in Japan, they call them what? Yakuza or whatever, these gangs. These guys, you see them, they look like a, a picture. Tattoos from head to toe. Prohibited in Islam. So Prophet when he observed that they were making these artificial changes in the dead palms, he asked them, why are you doing this? They said, well, this is what our parents did. This is, what, this, is what we, this is what we learned from our parents. We're just doing what they taught us. So he said, perhaps it would be better if you didn't do it. So, fine, they stopped. Next year, the yield dropped tremendously. You know, 60, 70% of the yield gone. They only got a few buckets full instead of the large numbers of dates they got before. So they came back to Prophet Muhammad He said, well, you know, you told us not to do it and uh, look what happened. He said, listen, I'm a man. Whatever I've commanded you from Allah in the religion, then you follow it. Exactly. But whatever I suggest to you from the things of this world, this daily life, whatever. You know best your, your own affairs, you know. You go according to your, your own decision. So he made a distinction. And because of that, on different occasions, when Prophet would tell the companions, do this or do that, especially on occasions where it's obviously not something related to religion, you know, when they're in battle or whatever, you know, they would, he would suggest do this or do that. They would say to him, is this revelation, Ya Rasulullah? Or is this uh, your opinion, you know, and war is about, you know, deception, etc. You know, he would clarify it for them, you know. It's my opinion, and they make other suggestions. Say, well, listen, maybe we should do it this way or do it that way. And he would listen to their suggestion and choose. He made that distinction himself. So what this means for us is that there are some things which Prophet ﷺ did which have no relevance to us in the religion. We are aware of it. We love the Prophet and as such, as the earlier generations did, they conveyed everything they knew about him to us. You have a book which is called Shama'il At-Tirmidhi, in which Imam At-Tirmidhi, he collected all of the narrations which described the Prophet This is also to help those, for example, if you know what Prophet Muhammad looks like, as Prophet Muhammad said, if I come to you in a dream, know that I have come to you, because Satan cannot take my form. 
But if you don't know what he looks like, guess what? Satan can come to you. And you might think, deluded, beguiled into thinking that this is Rasulullah. Instructing you to do this or to do that and don't do this and do th- You find many, many of the innovations that have come in, you'll find traced back to somebody in a dream. He said, you know, Rasulullah came to him and told him to do this. It's a, one of the channels that Satan comes and, and deviates people. So, Imam Tirmidhi, he compiled this. For us, if you want to know what Prophet looked like, you can go and read there. They give good detail about the Prophet Muhammad. His height, the way he walked, you know, turban, his hair, everything. Now, in it, it describes the sandals that the Prophet Muhammad favored. When he used to go to the market, he used to choose a particular sandal. Which was of brownish red leather, and the hair was scraped off it because sometimes they would keep, leave the hair on, sometimes they would scrape it off. This is what he chose the one with the hair scraped off, smooth leather, and it had two straps on it. Now, if you make this legal sunnah, right, then the Eskimo cannot apply the sunnah. Because if he puts on these saddles, his foot will freeze to death. Freeze. You know, in the North Pole, the Eskimos, they have to wear big boots that cover them. They can't wear this kind of When you find something which is not universal, generally speaking, if it's not universal, then you know it's from the natural. Because the legal, the sunnah, Islam, is universal. It's not limited to any people, place, or time. However, there is a book, a translation of Shama'il At-Tirmidhi, translated into Urdu. And from Urdu it was translated into English by one of the local scholars of the Indo-Pakistani subcontinent. It's called Shama'il At-Tirmidhi. That's how they write it. And in it, he describes the shoes. The shoes are there. And then he gives his own interpretation. And he starts to explain that now, if you make a drawing of these shoes and you put it under your pillow and you do this and you do that then you will get so many barakas and so many rewards and this will happen for you and your life will improve this is bidah deviation because this person has tried to turn what was natural to Prophet into legal giving it now value which the Prophet never gave Now, from the, nat- from the legal sunnah, it is divided into five basic categories. The first one called wajib or fard. And I should point out that according to the Hanafi madhab, there is a distinction they have made between the two. They say fard is what is compulsory from Quran, wajib is what is compulsory from Sunnah. But all of the other scholars hold that this is the same. Because Allah said, whoever obeys 
the messenger has obeyed Allah. So it's all the same. Same value. Compulsory, yeah? The second category is called Mustahab. As a second name, they also call it Sunnah. And it's also called Mandub. Which all means recommend. Hmm. Recommended. Third category called Mubah. Or allowed. Fourth category Makru. Dislike. And fifth category called haram or prohibited. Now, I'm pointing this out why? Because you all hear these terms makru, sunnah. You know, people throw these terms back and forth. And most people don't know where they come from. They just know, you know, there's sunnah, there's makruh, there's, you know, like this. Mostly these are the terms, haram, makruh, fard, you know. They, they, they're using them, but where they come from? What is the basis of them? Is it just like, I feel today this is makruh, so I say makruh? You know, you feel tomorrow it's makruh, it's not makruh, you say no, it's mutahab, but, you know, it's just like a personal thing, however we feel. Where does this stuff come from? It has a basis. It has a basis in the Sunnah of the Prophet Because, how do we know when something, how do we divide these things up in this fashion? Where does it come from? We know when something is fard or wajib, when the Prophet Muhammad or Allah has commanded this thing without making any exception. A, an outright command. Do it. No exceptions made. A classic example of this, which a lot of people, you know, are in doubt about, is actually, in this category here, is actually the beard. The beard is actually in this category. Because the command which is in the, the Sahih Bukhari is clear. Prophet said, Grow your beards and trim your mustache. Be different from the pagans. Distinguish yourself from the pagans. He, he, he took this very strongly. One occasion, some emissaries were sent from Rome to come and talk to him. And the whole time that they were talking to him, he turned his back. So after they left, the companions asked him, why did you do this? He said, because, and they had these big mustaches, no beards, clean shaven. He said, because this was a sight which was hated by Allah. So, so Islamic position concerning the beard is that it is compulsory. It is commanded and you will not find any exception in the sunnah. 
Actually, the early scholars, for example, in the Hanafi Madhab, they took the position that they would not accept the witness in court, a court of law. Anyone who shaved their beard, they wouldn't accept his witness. Because if this man could so openly go against the Sunnah of Rasulullah, can we trust this man to tell the truth? The second category is that of which things which are re- recommended. Recommended meaning that Prophet put on it some reward. If you do this, those who do this will get such and such rewards. Or he did it often. He used to do it all the time. Of the religious acts. These things are classified as being recommended. Or if it was something which, which he expressed in a compulsory form, however he himself went against what he said later in his action and by doing that he would clarify for them that what he meant by that statement was not compulsory but recommended because if I say to you in English go home now that could mean an order that you better go home otherwise something is going to happen to you or it could mean go home it's better for you to go home it's good for you to go home now preferable the order doesn't necessarily you cannot determine from an order whether one means absolute order or whether one means something which is recommended unless the context or the circumstance will further explain it for you so similarly in Arabic this is how the uh, orders were looked at if the circumstance uh, allowed for a, a variation, like, like there's another statement of Prophet Muhammad for example, he told the companions at one point that bathing on the day of Juma is compulsory for everyone who has reached puberty. But later on he said, if one makes wudu on Yom Juma, it's good. But if he makes ghusl, it's better. So he later makes clarifying statements to clarify for them that when he said it is compulsory, he didn't mean compulsory in the, in the absolute sense, but it is highly recommended for you to do so. The third category here of Mubah, this is considered things which have not been commanded or recommended or disliked, it's just neutral. Up to you. Prophet was offered the meat of lizard, buck, lizard meat, was offered to him to eat. When he didn't know what it was, he was about to eat it. When he was informed what it was, he didn't eat it. When the companion who was with him asked him, is this haram? He said, no, I just don't like it. So the companion took the Prophet and ate it along with his. Mubah, whether you eat lizard meat, whatever of the halal, things that are there, you do them, uh, you take a bath because you're sweaty, you know, Mubah, your choice, you prefer to drink uh, Coke instead of 7-Up, uh, no, no, nothing in the religion says you must one or the other, <laughs> just totally neutral, man. then the next category is called Makru or dislike, these are the things which Prophet had identified as being displeasing to Allah 
For example, Prophet on one occasion found a companion lying on the ground sleeping on his stomach. Sleeping on his stomach. So he nudged him with his foot. When the companion woke up, he said, This is a way of lying which is disliked by Allah, the way that the people of the hellfire lie. So here he was indicating it is not better not to sleep on your stomach. Now, we understand really from Sharia that whenever Prophet encourages us not to do something, there must be some harm in there. And when he encourages us to do something, there must be some good in there. What is prohibited is prohibited because it's harmful. What is permitted is because it is beneficial. So, when these distinctions are made, these are not arbitrary distinctions, but they're made based on human need, harm or benefit which may come to a human being. Now, on an occasion, I was giving some classes similar to this in uh, Panama, Central America, and the people asked me, why is it that Islam doesn't like us to sleep on a stomach? What is the harm in it? I told them I didn't know. I believe there must be some harm in it. This is what Prophet said. Obviously, he told us not to eat with our right hand. I'm sorry, eat with our left hand. We eat with our right, we clean ourselves with our left. People in those times didn't know about microbes and diseases and how disease spreads through, you know. So that if you are eating with the same hand that you're cleaning yourself, that you can spread to yourself certain major diseases and sicknesses. Alhamdulillah, the Muslims, they just followed this guidance. They ate with the right, clean with the left. And they saved themselves a lot of the sicknesses that people all around the world were being devastated with. Right? So the benefit is there. We can see it inside us. This is, just rec- this is a strong recommendation of Prophet In the case of the pig, prohibition. We found out later on, trypnosis and other diseases, etc., from the pig. So we know that there is some benefit in it. In any case, what happened was that I was flying to Guyana in South America and uh, to do some courses there also. And on the airplane, the, the issue of Time magazine that I was reading, that they distributed amongst the people, this issue was dedicated to back problems the various sicknesses, etc. And it was on the cover. And so the main body of the, 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 the magazine was dedicated to these different problems. They pointed out the various sicknesses that people have, curvature of the spine, slipped discs, crushed discs, all these kind of things. Then the different operations, latest developments in, in Western medical technology to deal with these different things. And after all that, in the end, they had doctor's recommendations. Number one on the doctor's recommendations was do not sleep on your stomach. And they explained why. They said because when you sleep on your stomach, you know your spine. If a person lies on the stomach, you have the spine here. That spine is a heavy, bony structure. Now, in front of your spine is your soft organs, intestines, your, you know, the lungs, the, the, the stomach, 
liver, all of these, pancreas, all these are soft organs. So what happens is that when you lie in your stomach, then this sags downwards. No support. The spine sags downward. And they said that this is the major cause of the curvature of the spine. When people reach a certain age, you see their back start to curve over. They end up walking around like this. It's quite common. This is from sleeping on the stomach. As well as they pointed out other ones which having to do with this, etc. Also related to this. So they recommend that you should sleep either on your back or on your side with your knees bent. And guess what? In Sahih Bukhari of Muslim advises the companions when you go to sleep sleep on your right side with your knees bent Abdullah not only that but two years ago British researchers doing a study on cot death cot death you know there's this woman in the news here again I saw she at first her baby died they thought she died of cot death but then they realized that he, she killed the baby, so she's being charged now, right? But uh, they had a couple of cases of cot death anyway in Sydney. Cot death, it means like you put a child to sleep, you come back five minutes later, the child's dead. No, no, for no reason, for no apparent reason. They also call it SDS, Sudden Death Syndrome. They did research into the the, 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 the factors which surrounded the children dying they asked the parents like when you put the child to sleep how did you put them what did they eat all, all the different factors they could you know and statistically they're trying to narrow it down to determine what is the common factor they found that number one common factor babies were put to sleep on their stomach so they put out a big article and I cut it out I saved it big article do not put your children to sleep on their stomach Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 1,400 years ago told us don't sleep on your stomach Muslims who followed saved themselves those who didn't ended up with curved spines caught death etc 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 so this is the importance here of you know makru these are things which are beneficial 